Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. Hi guys, uh, my name is Jessica Sapsis. I'm an Associate Director Product Management at Toast. I work on sort of our core platform. All right, so my career thus far, I'm a non-traditional product manager uh, type of career path. So I don't come from an engineering background. I don't come from a business school background. Um, none of that is part of my story. I went to BU for English and Anthropology, <laughs> liberal arts degree, uh, which has not been super useful except for the robust communication skills and sort of you know organizing your thoughts and, and having some critical thinking which I think is very helpful above and beyond some of the things that um, you know the technical space focuses on today. Um, these areas are things that I've worked on in my past so when I first started out I worked at a startup called Buzz Agent doing um, a social media word of mouth marketing campaign back in the early 2000s. Um, I then actually worked in the restaurant industry for a little while, which, you know, you can see how that would segue into my career at Toast. Um, and I got a little burnt out on the restaurant industry, wanted to get back into the technology space. I really missed it. Um, so I um, transitioned back in and started working at uh, Staples Business Advantage, which is their corporate sort of B2B uh, portal working on their search engine. So the first, the first project I had as a, a young product manager was working on sort of replatforming the search engine uh, for that e-commerce website. Um, after that, I worked on a ton of like UX um, initiatives, primarily at Staples, and then I moved over into CVS where I worked on their mobile app um, and their curbside sort of omni-channel experience, which essentially allows you, I don't know if anyone's ever done a curbside pickup experience. A lot of restaurants are starting to move into this space, but it allows you to use your phone to order ahead, have the items brought to your car. You don't actually have to get out of your car. The items just sort of show up automatically, in theory. Um, so today, what do I do? I work at Toast, which you guys are probably familiar with. We're in a ton of restaurants. Anywhere you see the little orange icon on the POS system, which is the point of sale, um, that little box right there behind the bar. Uh, that's the Toast platform, sort of empowering restaurants to do what they love, uh, delight their guests, and thrive. That's our mission statement. That's sort of what we care about as an organization. Um, and the ideal is that we can support restaurants, be successful, and at the same time sort of meld into the background as a, a product suite. We don't actually want to be in their way. We want to let them sort of just get on with their day-to-day -day tasks and move forward with their, their daily operations. All right, so a couple of things that I'm going to cover, and again, since most of you seem to have some experience in this, this may be kind of foundational, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the dynamic between the product manager and the UX designer, or the product designer, or the UX architect, whatever terminology your particular organization is using. There's a lot of different terms thrown out there, um, and there's a lot of sort of overlap between what a lot of organizations expect a product manager or a product owner and a UX designer or a product designer um, to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's definitely some efficiencies and some really great reasons to sort of have that role overlap work to your advantage. Because as a product manager, you're gonna be really busy doing a bunch of things that the UX designer 
probably shouldn't and probably does not want to be involved in on the marketing side, on sort of the more strategic side, dealing with escalations, all sorts of fun day-to-day um, -day stuff that can be a distraction for someone who needs to you know, do deep work on the interaction side. So talking a little bit about discovery was the area that I started uh, sort of honing in on when I was looking at this topic and, and thinking about what I wanted to cover and the idea of a problem statement using a Google design sprint, if you guys are familiar with that. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about the times that I failed working with UX designers. The thing that we run into more and more often is that particularly when you're working in sort of a, a small group environment where there's a, a pod who's sort of all ta uh, tasked with working on the same problem, there's a lot of overlap. Right? Like the UX designer might work directly with the front end engineers to define how the user experience is going to work. And the product manager may not be able to be in that discussion because maybe they're in a go to market meeting for something else that they're working on, or they're dealing with some sort of escalation or a bug, some sort of triage thing. So there's a lot of overlap. Um, and there's a lot of fuzziness as far as who's responsible for what. But at the core of it, I think the UX designer, to your point, they care about the user, they care about the user experience. They care about everything about that experience, so not necessarily just the software, but all the things that are sort of happening around the user while that person is trying to complete a task, do something delightful. So anything that's happening sort of adjacent to the user while they try to get something done that's interacting with that product set. Versus the product manager sort of cares about the user from the perspective of what are they trying to accomplish? What are the barriers in, that, in the way? of that task being completed, and how can I sort of rally a group of engineers, the UX team, and the business around kind of unblocking that user to complete that task. All right, so I'm gonna talk a little bit, and I'm sorry the font didn't really translate super great here, um, about how we organize things at Toast, and this has been my experience at most companies I've worked at, um, barring a few you know, economies of scale when you're working at a smaller organization, you may not have all of these resources, and your team may not be structured in this way. So, Product manager, that's me. Uh, we often have a UX researcher for projects that are sort of large enough or the problems are thorny enough that we really wanna do a big upfront research initiative before we actually do anything around a user story or requirement or anything of that sort. We have a product designer who handles all of the interaction design and thinks about the user's experience end to end, including things that might be happening around the user while they're actually interacting with the product. And then we have our engineering and QA org. So sort of like over here <laughs> to the left of the product manager are all of the additional people that the product manager typically has to interact with. And I don't have them here, but I think it's important to call out. So they're often talking to customer success or whoever your services and support organization are. Um, they're talking to other teams about their roadmaps and any dependencies or sort of cross-functional pollination that needs to happen in order to meet you know, a company-wide objective, let's say, or all sort of marching towards the same drum. So there's a bunch of other stuff on the left-hand side of the product manager. And I like to think of them as the person who sort of runs defense and, and sort of keeps those interfering forces from impacting the product designer, the UX researcher, and the engineering team, right? So they handle all of that stuff so that the UX researcher and the product designer can collaborate on user testing or work on a journey map, figure out all of that stuff. Um, and the engineering and QA team can sort of continue iterating on the, the code base and sort of get us into an architectural place where we can execute on a feature. So this is how we organize things at Toast. A lot of times you'll have groups where you don't have a UX researcher. That's sort of a new emerging part of the UX landscape. Not all companies have those. 
Um, sometimes a product designer and the product manager might be the same person. Sometimes you have a product manager and a visual designer or an information architect and they just like apply a style guide after that. So really there's a ton of overlap in what you're expected to do as a product manager and what you're expected uh, to understand as a UX designer uh, that really creates some, some strong collaboration between those two. They really, they need to be in sync, those two roles. And that's sort of what I'm, I'm trying to, to hone in on here is that the better you are at collaborating with your UX team and your UX resource, whoever's on your, your product, the better your product's gonna be. And the happier you're gonna be as a product manager because you're gonna have more time to do strategic thinking, to plan additional roadmap items. It's just gonna allow you to have a lot more economy in the work that you're doing. So what does that give you? The more that you can collaborate with your UX uh, partner and the more you can sort of clearly define who's responsible for what upfront and how you're gonna sort of organize your work, the better the first official phase of your projects are gonna be, that's discovery. And this should be like an ongoing iterative process that you go through as you're building a roadmap, especially if you're sort of inheriting a roadmap from you know, perhaps an established product um, or from leadership. You know, it's not always that everyone gets to start with the blank slate and sort of like figure out what to build. Half the time you're sort of given a list of things that someone thought was important at some point. So the discovery phase is the critical starting point for any team who needs to look deeply into a problem. The better your discovery, the better your development process, the more you're gonna be able to scale that successfully. Oop. All right, has anyone seen this, this image before? Sort of a standard iterative release process. I know it's a little bit uh, challenging with the, the font that they chose to use, but what I really like about this illustration is the dual track that it shows, right? So discovery isn't, it's not like a waterfall environment where you, you sort of start a project and we're like, great, we're gonna build this thing and we're gonna build it and then we're gonna release it and when that's done, we're gonna move on to the next thing. You can see up here, just make sure I don't trip and fall here. You can see up here in the discovery phase, it's continuous and the UX and the product uh, manager are the people driving that discovery process. And it, it's continual and it's cyclical. Not everything makes it to the you know, much larger blue circles down on the bottom, which represents actual development effort, where you know, someone's actually building something. A lot of stuff is getting thrown into the recycling bin up top. And that represents testing. And that represents you know, coming up with ideas quickly, uh, finding a way to get data to support those arguments or discard them, and then moving forward. And I actually wish this had a little bit more overlap between the development circles and the discovery circles, because I do think there's a place for dev input in this process, and I don't think this does a great job of representing that, uh, but it's sort of the best, best one I could find. Um, and you see down at the bottom, the circles are larger because there's significantly more effort. You know, that's, that's representing you know, a whole team of people building something, making sure it works on any number of devices, a bunch of different browsers, you know, there's a lot of work there. So the more careful you are and the more you can collaborate with your UX team um, in the green circle area and the more prescriptive you are about what you're actually trying to solve for, the better those blue circles are gonna go. Okay. Okay, so how does discovery work best, particularly when you're working with um, you know, a UX designer, which hopefully at this point is sort of your partner in this effort. Um, so understanding your users and meeting them, meeting them where they are. So at Toast, we use the example 
um, of actually going and watching restaurant owners, restaurant operators, front of house staff use the product in a restaurant. Because there's often, and I think, you know, this touches on the empathy touch part of, you know, having <laughs> engineers aren't always aware of what is happening in a restaurant that might make the product harder to use than they expect. Where they're like, oh yeah, you can just, you know, do XYZ thing and it's fine if maybe an error message is there for a second and then disappears. And if you've ever been in a busy restaurant, someone's gonna turn away from the screen, something else is happening, people have 10 things on their plate. You know, you need to be really clear about what the user needs to do next because they've probably done 10 different things in between the steps that you're trying to get them to complete. So actually going to where your users are at using your product, if at all possible, you know, what we call ethnographic research, actually going and watching them is really important. Um, and definitely a UX researcher or a UX partner is a great resource for that if they're familiar with this. And this is something I, I definitely recommend. If you can't actually go there, having customers come to you is always better than not talking to customers at all. So customer research in terms of interviews, surveys, um, there's a ton of you know, online resources. Usertesting.com is, is something that you can you know, push a prototype onto and have that be a resource to sort of get some initial feedback. Uh, crafting a problem statement, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And then understanding basic constraints, and this is sort of the development limitations. Um, some real world limitations you're just not gonna get out of. And so you know, having those be stated up front just keeps everybody focused. In discovery, the idea is to not come up with a solution. And this is often why it's really good for the product manager and the UX uh, designer or, or um, manager to really sort of partner on this effort and bring in cross-functional stakeholders from different teams to talk about the problem and avoid coming up with any solutions. You don't want a solution at this point. And you want UX there as early as possible. So at some organizations, you know, the product manager will sort of go off and, and come up with this whole deck you know, they've got like the competitive analysis and the market fit, but they haven't actually talked to their UX designer about the, what the experience today is or what the problem is that they're trying to solve. Um, so making sure that the UX person is part of this process is really the cr critical piece here. So a good problem statement provides focus and frames the problem, inspires your team because it becomes your mission statement for the feature that you're trying to, to release. It becomes the, you know, the north star of your product as far as where am I trying to get to? What am I actually trying to accomplish here? And it's not just about shipping code or meeting you know, a quarterly goal or, or driving up sales. There's usually, ideally, a customer problem at the heart of it that you're actually trying to solve. So this helps define that and it helps to write it down and have it in a place where the team can look at it and can reference it you know, when they get in the weeds down the road on the development side. It helps you evaluate competing ideas because there's a lot of ideas that someone's gonna come up with during brainstorming or whiteboarding sessions. Um, and, you know, what you really need to do is maintain focus on the problem. Some of those ideas might be great, but if they're not actually solving the problem that you've decided is the most important problem to solve, you know, they should be tabled, maybe picked up later when you have a different problem to solve and those ideas might be relevant again. It empowers your team to make independent decisions. And I can't stress this enough. It really helps for your engineering team to feel empowered to understand the user problem, to understand the user journey, um, and be able to make decisions without having to come to you for every single little decision that needs to be made. It helps them be independent and it helps free up your time. As a product manager, your time is the most precious resource you have. 
Um, so having you know an independently operating team is really valuable and really um, you know a metric of success as a product manager. Captures the hearts and minds of people you meet. So it's great to have the problem statement because then when you have to go socialize your functionality to other stakeholders like product marketing, uh, customer support, uh, training, education, all of those sort of you know supplemental functions that you have to interface with, your problem statement is going to be the thing that you go back to over and over again to be like, this is what I'm trying to achieve. This is the problem we're trying to solve. This is why this is valuable. And you should spend your time and your marketing budget promoting my feature, right? Uh, prevents you from creating concepts that are all things to all people. I'm guilty of this one. <laughs> this comes up later in my UX failure resume, um, which is essentially like trying to just throw in every feature because you can, because you're in the code already, and so we might as well just do this at the same time. And really, it just kind of creates feature bloat and scope creep, and you just sort of end up doing more <laughs> than you really need to to actually solve the problem. And the point of this whole exercise is to solve the problem in an efficient and sort of timely, iterative manner. So instead of building everything, just build the one thing that you think solves a problem, see if it does that, and then iterate. Should be discreet, not too broad. I think that's obvious because you know if it's too tries to do everything, then it's going to be all things to all people. And so I just sort of summarize this. A good problem statement helps you empathize with the user who has the problem. It helps you define what that problem is, and it helps inspire your team to solve that problem. So here's a couple examples. I stole these from the web, um, although I wrote my real-world example myself, sort of with the toast perspective. So the classic way of structuring this is some stakeholder, some person, and then you sort of describe them a little bit with some descriptive uh, language that helps you know, inspire empathy. Needs a way to do something because of something that you've learned through talking to your users, collecting data on them, um, and sort of understanding how people are interacting with your product if it already exists in the wild. Um, and then talking about this person's need. So I wrote this one, a busy multitasking restaurant manager needs a way to view how many employees are clocked in because they are concerned about labor costs and want to keep close track of this number day to day. So that's a problem statement. That might help us you know, hone in on this idea that we need to build better tooling around labor costs. Are you over? Are you under? What do your sales look like? Should you have this many people on staff? Could we send you an SMS that tells you that you're over on your labor percentage? There's all sorts of things that this problem statement sort of pushes me to as a product manager to be like, OK, what am I trying to solve? Visibility to labor costs. Why? Because this guy is concerned about his costs. Because the labor market is expensive, especially in the restaurant industry. And so this is one I'm guilty of. This is on my UX failure list of things where I've been like, I am so sure that scanning your credit card is going to make checkout better, that that's the thing that I'm going to build because obviously no one wants to type in their credit card numbers. And then I'm going to go interview a bunch of customers and ask them, isn't it annoying when you have to enter <laughs> your credit card information? Wouldn't you like to just scan it instead um, and sort of have that bias implicit in my data collection, which sort of then, you know, diverts my roadmap in a way that might not have happened if I'd gone into it sort of with a more open mind and less of a solution-based mindset. This is one I have to guard against all the time because I've done enough product where I'm like, oh yeah, this is, I've done this before. I know what the solution to this should in theory be and it's not always right. And I have to sort of check myself there. So I came up with a scenario where you're trying to 
create a feature for a line of self-driving cars, I'll stipulate that it can't actually be the driving of the car. It has to be a feature within the car. So it's not like I just want the car to take me everywhere because I don't want to drive. That's not the functionality. Something inside the car, a problem statement. So as a mom to a newborn, which I'm not, but as a mom to a newborn, I am trying to get some rest because I am tired because the baby is up all night, all the time. I would like to be able to block out all light from the driving car so that I can sleep while I'm just being taken from place to place. And I guess my baby is at home or I want the baby to rest maybe in the car. No light, no visibility, full tinted windows. So I'm a tired mom with a newborn baby. I'm trying to get some rest, but I can't because uh, the baby is keeping me up, which makes me feel tired for a self-driving car. And so the way that I looked at that was then how could we make this more of a, a bed type environment? Okay, so the next thing is the Google Design Sprint. Has anyone been in one of these, learned about one of these? Great. Okay, you've got some experience here. Uh, these are great. They are a one-week exercise for a team that is rallying around a particular piece of functionality or a particular, particular problem area. Um, definitely stole this screenshot. I think the uh, citation is in the comments. Um, but it's broken up by day. And there's a bunch of different, uh, very prescriptive, very deliberate tasks that you perform on each day, which ideally should lead you at the end um, to having some sort of data set that you can look at to understand if you're sort of on the right track to solving you know, a problem that's you know, impactful for your users. So the first day I think is the most important. Personally, it's like the heaviest lift as far as collecting all this data, sort of having all the right people in the room. There's a ton of work that really needs to happen before you do the actual design sprint, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, but on the first day, you really need to understand who are the users, what are their needs, what is the context, what are other people doing in this space? So if there is competition, which you know, for most industries there is. What are they doing? Sort of what's, what's out there, what's available to the, those users to solve those same problems? And you just sort of formulate a strategy around that. So how are you gonna approach this problem? What are, what are sort of the pieces of information you're gonna collect? On the second day, uh, you essentially wireframe. And you don't have to be a UX designer to do this. This is just really fast pencil on a post-it. I brought a bunch of those. Um, just rapid prototyping, no real training or skills necessary, but like how would you solve this problem in a software environment? So maybe it's an app or something. Um, you know, what are the flows? What are the data that you want to expose to this user to help them solve their problem? On the third day, as a group, and I sort of glossed over this, but it's a cross-functional group who's involved with this. Maybe I should talk about that a little bit more on the next slide. But as a group, you take a look at all of the ideas, and you decide, and there's one person who's a decision maker, and they're assigned that role from the beginning, and they have to choose what's the idea we're gonna pursue for the rest of this week. So you just put everything out there, and then one person, usually the product manager, has to say, this is the idea I think is the most valuable. This is the idea that we're gonna test out, and we're gonna see where it goes. On the fourth day, you prototype something. So, how, who's done rapid prototyping, or heard of it, maybe? Okay, right? So that's essentially what you do here. You build something that a user could interact with. It might be pieces of paper that just show the user flow. Doesn't, no coding has to be done here. It could just be 
you know, something done in a wireframing tool like Envision or, or some other sort of, you know, quick prototype. Balsamic is a really great one for people who aren't super UI, um, you know, heavy users. Uh, there's a ton of tools online that will help you build out something quick and dirty that you could put in front of users, get feedback. So that's what you do. You build something. Some people intentionally make it not super attractive to not create bias around sort of like how good is the design, right? You just keep it really light. And on the fifth day, you go and you find some of those users, and hopefully you have a strategy for how you're going to do that before you start <laughs> the design sprint. Um, and you test it out, and you collect some data. And it might be a pretty limited data set. Maybe you can only get 10 users. Maybe you can get 50. Maybe you could put a, a, a table up in a you know, south station and just collect people as they walk by. There's a lot of different ways that you can collect data from real users who might actually engage with this product and you see what works and what doesn't work. And the idea is at the end of this one week long period, Monday through Friday, you've come up with some ideas, you've worked with a team who understand the problem that you're trying to solve for, you've prototyped something, and you've collected some data to see if that solution holds any water. And if it doesn't, you've only wasted a week. And you've actually gained a lot of knowledge and cross-functional awareness because you know, the people that you've worked on this with now understand the problem a lot better. And they understand the ideas that you're thinking about to solve the problem. If your idea tests really well, maybe it's time to bring the engineering team in and see if this idea is feasible. And what would the effort be to actually build this? And that's sort of the classic Google design sprint. So it really aligns with design thinking, which is a concept that many, some of you may be familiar with, right? Um, and there's five different stages to design thinking, empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And that's the Google design sprint. So if you hear about design thinking and that being you know, a, a positive approach to product management and working with UX teams, this is a good, a good tool to use to actually Im implement a design thinking perspective in your product roadmap. All right, so we did this over at Toast. Particular team, we have a team working on a new app, which actually launched today which is very exciting. Um, Toast Takeout. It is iOS only. So, but it is in the App Store today. You can download it. It's, it's very cool. I'm very excited uh, for this team. And one of the things that they've used with great success is this Google Design Sprint. To come up with ideas, to iterate on some of the problems that a diner experiences when they're going to do takeout. So the takeout, Toast Takeout experience is geared around the Boston area, and it's geared around takeout and going and picking up food, right? Particularly if you work in an area where you get sort of like the same lunch and you just go to Sweetgreen over and over again or Salonikis or whatever it is, this app is sort of designed around that experience. So Monday, they gathered data. Tuesday, they did some sketching. Wednesday, the product owner, product manager decided this is the one, we're gonna pursue this one. Thursday, they built it. Friday, they tested out. I'm just going to jump ahead to this picture. So this is some of the team. I w I'm not on this team. This is the consumer team. But I work with all these fine folks. Um, and this is the journey map that they sort of had as one of the artifacts from the design sprint. Even that is super useful, right? So even just going through this exercise, even if you don't actually build any code, you've done a lot of upfront work that really helps your, under your team understand the user journey and the problems that you're facing um, or that really your users are facing. Based on some of the stuff that I've done in my past <laughs> as a product manager, and I, I touched on it earlier, I definitely am a non-traditional product manager in that I don't have a technical background, and I sort of just fell into this job as a result of the work that I 
basically started doing um, in college. I started working at a startup while I was still finishing my English degree. Um, and then I just really kind of never left it and I kept going. And along the way, I've made all of these mistakes. And I think tighter collaboration with my UX partner, the Google Design Sprint, and a problem statement, like a good one, would have protected me against a lot of these pitfalls. So I have definitely gone into design without planning any discovery phase. When I've deprioritized upfront research, I've said, oh, I have this backlog. I understand all these problems and all the, the work represented by this backlog. I'm just going to prioritize it based on what I think, because I think I understand the problems pretty well. And we'll just run with that. Some of that worked out OK. Some of it didn't. You know, So that's not necessarily uh, the way that I would approach that. I have definitely done discovery without defining a problem statement. And the output of that is just sort of a meandering discovery phase where I'm like, I know we need to optimize this workflow, but I don't actually know what problem I'm trying to solve. How can we improve it? And it, you get there, but it takes a lot longer. And it sort of burns up people's time. And that's not a great, great way to approach uh, software development. I've also become too knowledgeable about my product area, where I understand all of the bugs and all of the reasons why you can't build something and all of the functional limitations and sort of gone into working with the UX team by being like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. This config isn't available. Here's all the reasons why that's not supported. And that's just not going to help anyone come up with a new idea either. That's just going to have everyone operate within the same constraints that I'm trying to design my way out of. So that was not, not great. I've also just gone straight to visual design, where I'm like, I just need a button. I need this button. I need this workflow. Please just reskin you know, this wireframe that I pulled together in Balsamic. And I just need it in the style guide so I can build it. Sometimes that's appropriate, but most of the time you're doing it yourself a disservice. I have definitely not done enough research on the impact of a change, or I have made a change because someone higher up told me that that was the right thing to do, and I didn't sort of double check that. So someone more senior than me was like, yes, move that button. We don't need it there. It's fine. We've already talked about this. And I've been like, of course, yes. And I have done that, and then later you know, had some regrets. So those are all the mistakes that I've made. So I just wanted to share that like, you know, as a product manager, typically you're learning from this the most. You know, like this is this is the type of stuff that sort of burns you and then moving on you realize that your UX partner is really a valuable resource to keep you from making these sorts of mistakes and keeping you in check on what is the actual problem we're trying to solve and who are the users we're trying to solve it for. And that's it. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.